Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast with Ed Krasnick and Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer coming up shortly. And on today's show, this guy is a terrific filmmaker. He's multi-talented. He's he's the hardest working manager. He's got a podcast called Respect the Process, which is very good. And he's got a, a commercial directing school, almost, in many classes. And he's a documentary filmmaker and probably knows more about the lives of comedians than anybody because he's done three documentaries about it. And that's Jordan Brady. Jordan joining us shortly. And I have more food allergies than anybody. I'm no one has more food allergies than I do. And that'll be a new series called I'm Allergic. So on today's show, a couple things that I wanted to share with you. First of all, we talk to people about mental health, entertainers, creative people from all fields. We talk about mental health and then we practice skills because mental health is a practice. There are so many simple things that you can do to change your relationship to your thoughts and feelings relationship to thoughts and feelings, it has a big role in our lives, that and understanding how our brain works. If those two things were covered in any aspect, in any field, at any time, the world would be completely different. That's all I'm going to say about it. Now, does that mean that I do it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No one is better at giving advice and not following it than me. If there was an award, I'd get frequent flyer miles. I'd be on Pluto. No one is better at that. We're going to talk about judgment, judging yourself and others, comparing yourself to others, how to become aware of it and make another choice. Usually we do emotional shout outs, but I'm going to tell a quick story because my daughter and I just came back from a trip back east to Boston and we were lucky enough to go to Fenway Park and sit in the owner's seats and watch the Red Sox. And it pretty much is the last time they won a game. That was a couple weeks ago. And now I want to tell you a story that sort of relates to that. You don't have to be a baseball fan or a sports fan to follow this. The year is 1978, and the Red Sox have just lost a 15-and-a-half game lead to the New York Yankees, and they have to play a one-game playoff at Fenway Park. And my father and I are watching the game on the edge of my parents' bed, which is, I don't think it's a king-size bed. I think it's a stadium size. There is a multicolored bedspread on there that looks like an angry Jewish housewife has just finger painted. It's kind of like that. My father is in a t-shirt. We're watching a Philco black and white portable television set with a coat hanger antenna because we used to carry the set around the house to avoid communication with each other. One time I dropped it down the stairs, didn't let go of it and broke my thumb. This, these are real stories. I've got my head on his shoulder. I'm a young kid. I'm watching, and we're believing that the Red Sox are going to lose because until 2004, they had lost for 86 years. And there was a collective feeling of negativity, constant, constant negativity, no matter what, always waiting for the worst to happen. So we're watching the game. The Red Sox are up a run, and on the mound is Ron Guidry, who's a, a Cy Young winner and was 25 and three, 25 wins, three losses that year. And up to the plate comes my father's idol, Karl Yastrzemski, number eight. 
he gets into the box, and Guidry throws him a fastball on the outside corner, 97 miles an hour, and he gets it. Going, going, gone. And Yastrzemski is rounding the bases. And I look over at my father. My father is crying. Tears are coming down his cheeks. And I said, Daddy, are you okay? Why are you crying? And he said, because, Ed, I'm trapped in a marriage I don't understand. <laughs> that, so I bring that up just because, just because we're getting back into that negative belief space uh, with the Red Sox. And it just reminded me of like how much your experience is what you're thinking and how you can think about what you don't want or think about what you do want. And in those days, you had an entire fan base that was thinking about what they didn't want. And it worked out that way for 86 years. They didn't get what they wanted. Okay, so we came back. We had this great experience. We're coming back from vacation. This is terrific. And I want to introduce, I want to bring in right away my partner, who has a wonderful organization called ConnectedParenting.com, teaches resilient skills, teaches all kinds of mental health tools, self-parenting for parents, families, people all over the world, works with them, books, media, and it's great. And you go to ConnectedParenting.com, you can learn all about her, her work, ConnectedParenting.com. She is the first lady of the limbic system. She is the soothsayer of serotonin, and she is the ninja of the neocortex, and she is Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, uh, how you doing? I'm good. I look forward every week to hear my new handles. Awesome. Yes. This, these could be potential Instagram accounts. I don't know what they are, but we have to use them in some way. You know, I want to do something kind of different here. I want to play sure. a little game with you. Okay. And the game is called Fight, Flight, or Ease. Not Fight, Flight, or Freeze, but Fight, Flight, or Ease. All right. And I'm going to give you a scenario and then tell you how I would respond to the scenario. And then you tell me maybe a different way to handle it. Okay. Okay. Welcome to Fight, Flight, or Ease, sponsored by Oxidol. You run into someone on the street who seems to know you and you have no idea who they are. What I would do is I guess I'll choose fight because what I would do is I will keep talking to them until I get a clue about their name, even if it takes four weeks. Jennifer, what would you do? Okay, what would I do? Can I ask some questions about this scenario? Sure. Like they're right in front of you, like you can't hide. Right in front of me. So they're right in front of you. Hey, okay. how you doing? <laughs> and this is somebody you, you can't remember their name or you have no idea who they are? Cannot remember their name and occasionally have no idea who they are. Okay. <laughs> then I would go get checked out. No. Okay. Here's the thing. There's a, if it's somebody, if you can't remember someone's name, but you know that you know them, then I, there's a different way that I would handle that. If you, if they say like, Hey Ed, and you have never seen this person in your life and you have no idea who they are, there might be a slightly different way. So should I answer both? Answer both. Okay. So if it's a name, listen, always the best thing, and this is so hard to do, 
is to just be really honest and just say, I don't know what is going on with me. I, like, I know your face. I'm so happy to see you, but your name has escaped me. Now, very few people can actually do that because it sounds really scary to do that. You, you could also work the conversation, like you said, and just be friendly and warm and engaged and very present and very nurturing and show how happy you are to see that person. And if you don't need to use their name, then it's not a problem. Why do you have to say their name? Yeah, it's just sometimes it can get you can get awkward. Well, you've always been that way. Um, you well, I remember you, and then I start lying, and it's no good. It, well, you get yourself into a quagmire, and usually people can kind of understand. It's it's difficult because there's social skills. There's like ways to kind of handle this. If you truly have never seen the person ever before, you can just be very polite. You could be honest if you want and say, "I'm really sorry." I'm so embarrassed because I just, I, it's bl- I'm blanking. I'm so sorry. And just be really honest and open about it. But I'll be on- like, most people don't do that. Most people do the dodge and they try to, you know, but the other complicating factor is if you make stuff up or you get the person wrong, that's also really awkward. Like if it's not the person you think it is at all, then you're in a different quagmire, right? Yeah. I get really specific. And I say, remember that time we had soup together in Vietnam? And it'll be like, <laughs> oh no. What? Wrong oh no. Well, this is all about the kind of elegance and the dance and the grace that you sometimes need to have when it comes to social skills. I think, honestly, if if you genuinely in your heart feel warmth when you see this person, regardless of remembering their name, you just there's a warmth, there's just a feeling, then generate that. Let that come through in the conversation and and hopefully you can get out of it unscathed. Okay. Fight, flight, or ease. Question number two. A friend or relative makes a joke about your level of a success in business. How do you respond? I would respond with flight because most likely I laugh, let it go by, and then torture myself with it for 52 years. <laughs> okay. And what kind of comment did they make? It's one of the, it's like a hobby, you know, well, it's great that you get to do that, but what are you going to make a living at? Right. Okay. So we're going to pick ease here, but this is hard, okay? Because often when people say something and it's the kind of conversation where they're just taking a little dig at you and maybe it's on purpose and maybe they just really don't value what you do, then often that's much more about, has much more to do with them than it has to do with you, right? Especially if it's a passive aggressive, oh, you're still doing that comedy thing, like whatever it is. If it's really just um, designed to make you feel bad, it's designed to take your power a little bit so they feel better then I think it's really important to just not give them that, right? To, to say, hey, you know what? I love that you're doing what you're doing. I, I'm really happy with what I'm doing. I'm really comfortable with where I am in life. And I don't really need you to approve or disapprove. Like that kind of, I don't know if that, those would be your words exactly, but that would be the kind of energy. Don't let the person walk away taking a piece of you, right? And just know if somebody, if somebody has to say something to be mean or to be unkind or to make you feel bad, they're not in a good place or they wouldn't do it. Happy, healthy, content people don't need to do that to other people. Well, that, that was my manager. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I have, maybe I should get different management, I guess. Yeah. The real part of that, Ed, is the walking away and, and hating yourself for it and feeling bad about it. That's what we do to ourselves all the time. And someone literally, that was a power exchange. Oh, I'm a little jealous of Ed, or I'm not happy with where my life is going. So I'm going to take a little dig here so that I walk away feeling better. And then you walk away feeling terrible. And that's not a good exchange. So the, the conversation in your head should be that it's much more about that person, much less about you. 
uh, and not do that thing in your head where you get onto this negative slide and beat yourself up. Well, the thing I'd love to I'd love to be able to do is not to have to say anything and just say in my own head, you know, I realize that I'm, you know, that I'm enough anyway. So yeah. nothing can hurt me that way. Right. And just do that, that work over, over and over again. I'm enough. Right. But I'm a guy who, you know, I mean, I've experienced a lot of swallowing feelings. I don't know. You're listening out there. Maybe you're somebody like me. Uh, it, it does hurt me. Mm-hmm. And I don't say anything. So that combination is lethal. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a lot of people, Ed. A lot of people do that. And it, it's hard because complicated relationships are very complicated and it is about energy exchange. And But the most important thing as you're trying to hold on to yourself is remember that that person wouldn't say that if they were feeling okay. It's coming from a place of their pain and that helps you to kind of take it less personally a little bit. And then the yeah. other thing, I, what I love to do is in my head, if someone says something like that, I'm literally thinking, I'm sorry, you're in so much pain. You're having such a hard time. And the only way you can deal with it is, is to make somebody else feel bad. I don't say that out loud, but I'm kind of thinking that as we're having this exchange. And then that helps me keep my frontal lobe on. And the, I mean, the other thing is to do is just to look kind of not as not affected as you can. And then the other person doesn't get a reward for doing something like that. The, yeah. Often the reward is they made you feel bad and they walk away going, huh, there, okay. right? And that's, don't give them that. Do not give them that. Well, may, maybe people relate to this. I don't know. But uh, very quickly, last one, and then we're going to bring in our guest who is amazing. You lose your phone. How do you respond? Now, <laughs> I know you have a story about this, but also I will tell you how I respond. This is flight. And initially, my first thought is I will have to move back in with my parents who have been dead for over 20 years. So that's that's how I respond in the moment. Uh, you have a different story, maybe. I do. I do. Well, so, okay, so first thing I'm thinking is, it, these are all things that happen to us throughout the day, and depending on how we're feeling, right? If you're depleted, if you're exhausted, if you've had you know, a number of things go wrong in that day, then you're going to definitely have a, a fight reaction probably to that. If you're having a pretty good day and things are okay, you might have more reserves. You may be able to keep your head on straight and figure it out. If you're a 15 year old girl, forget it. It's over. Right. It's, it's an absolute, you know, earthquake phone fit. If you're a teenager, so this is really all about. I mean, what we're talking about is emotional regulation. We're talking about being able to handle kind of the curveballs, even just the little ones that life throws at you. So this is where you really need to use your frontal lobe. So losing your phone sucks. There's no question. It's a horrible feeling. It's a problem, but it's not life-threatening. It's not dangerous. It's, it's not actually an emergency even. It feels like one. And so when you're looking in your bag and you're kind of freaking out about where your phone is, your heart's going to be racing, your muscles are going to be tightening. Your midbrain is not going to know the difference between you misplacing your phone or a saber-toothed tiger standing in front of you that's going to launch at you. As long as you're having that physiological response, your adrenaline is pumping, your cortisol is surging through your body, you're going to be having a fight, flight, or freeze response. It's the frontal lobe that can help us to mediate that. Is this an emergency? So we've talked about this before on the show. It's like taking a breath, first thing, is really important. Just take a breath, drop your tongue in the bottom of your mouth, let your muscles kind of relax, relax your jaw, Take a second and then say to yourself, this is bad, but this is not an emergency. I cannot die from this. 
I can't be maimed from this. I'm not going to end up in the hospital from this. This is not an emergency. And sometimes when you get the frontal lobe to kind of override, you can actually get yourself to regulate a little bit better. And then you can think clearly, where did I leave it? Or who can I call? Or so did I back it up? And so it's not the end of the world. I'll, I'll figure it out. But I think what we're really talking about is, is the ability to, to regulate. And when we are stressed all the time, and when we are thinking negative thoughts all the time, and when we're beating ourselves up all the time, those are very depleting emotions that drain, just like leaving your car, a light on in your car. And it just drains that battery so that when you actually need to feel better or to make a good choice or to make a good decision, you don't have the energy to do it. So recharging your brain, and we've talked about a million ways on the show, how to do that, how to think in a positive way, how to think about good things, how to think about the things that you want instead of what you don't want, you know, making a slideshow of good memories, like doing that's recharging your battery, time with family, time with friends, hugs, snuggles, all those things help us to regulate eventually. Imagining it working out. I think I get into trouble a lot of times when either when I'm thinking about the future, because that's what I do when I get into panic mode. I think about never finding my phone yeah, and losing my credit cards and all that. I mean, that's how your mind works. That's how a lot yeah. of people's mind works. And that's trying to protect you, right? Your brain is, it's your brain's way of saying you're in danger. You're not really in danger, but emotions and thoughts are yeah. two, two-way conversation. You can yeah. talk back to them and mm-hmm. have a relationship with them. Speaking of relationship, I do want to bring in our guest because patiently waiting... This guy has done three really amazing feature documentary films. If you can make one film, you're amazing. If you can make three, you're out of your mind. This guy has done I Am Comic, uh, I Am Road Comic, and I Am Battle Comic. But he also teaches uh, wonderful classes in how to be a commercial director. He's been a director for a very long time, a successful director, a great director, uh, and he also has a great podcast about the process called Respect the Process. And he is none other than Jordan Brady. Jordan, are you still with us? Hi, Jordan. Wow. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me on. I'm always flattered whenever I can come on your various programs, Ed. And wow, what a lot of a lot of ground we've covered. We started back in 1978. With the Red Sox Yankees <laughs> game, and I was wondering how long is this intro going to be? Ed brings it home with the uh, fathers in a terrible <laughs> marriage joke. I love that. And then we did um, fight, flight, yeah. or sneeze, which I didn't quite understand. I hope yeah. I was hearing that correctly. And then Jennifer compared losing your phone in the midbrain. Yeah anyway, from the midbrain perspective, to facing yeah. a, si- a saber-toothed tiger. Yeah. I never thought the show would go. <laughs> We're all over the place. We do it all. We never do nothing nice and easy. We do it like Proud Mary. We always do it nice and rough. <laughs> this is the story, very quickly, is that I had a show years ago called the Self-Help Comedy Hour, which was the world's first self-help variety show. And we had music, we had a band, we had guests, and we had various experts coming in and working with comedians therapeutically, you know, trying to help them. I had no money for cameras. I had no money for equipment. And I was shooting it in a someone's living room, the Actors Art Theater, which was a theater in a living room and was shaped like a pie shape. So you couldn't... It was set up for success. <laughs> so you couldn't do this. 
you couldn't. And I wanted to capture it. I wanted to film it. So Jordan says, I'll film it. I'll do it for you. And this is what's great about you is that you, you want to help people. And so as a result, you help people with their stuff and you get into all these interesting scenarios and relationships. And I have a feeling that you're the kind of guy who builds community this way. You have with your show, you have with your classes, you have with your films. And is that true? It's true. But the irony is I'm a bit of a lone wolf. I don't have a close inner circle of friends. I have, you know, friends and people that I hang with occasionally, but even my kids are like, dad, you're a lone wolf. I like helping people. Uh, it's kind of like back in the stand-up comedy days for me. And you, you may still do this, Ed, you go to a town, you make people laugh, you take your money and leave. Right. Right. But you, you know what I mean? Like I like to help people and then we're done and then I'll help a new group of people. Yeah, that well, that that's true. But uh, you you figured out something in your life. I always had the feeling with you that you you settled into some kind of Zen approach, like you understood certain things. <laughs> Not a lot of comedians have a they they might have a Zenness to them, but they don't live that lifestyle. Uh, they don't live that in their minds. Where where did this come from? Early on, it was I stumbled across the the quote, and I appropriated it for my emails and everything for the longest time, relax and breathe. And I would just think, okay, if you take a breath and relax, and then using humor as a tool has helped me, you know, in filmmaking, just uh, working with clients or, you know, studios doing movies or comedians as the subject of documentaries, just keep a sense of humor, uh, take a breath, and it's it's all going to work out. Yeah, I mean, I I could have that thought, but living it, I think, is you know, I think that's really great that you can refer to that, use that as a template, and actually live that out. I think it's like a huge thing for your your sanity. Now, my question about directing is, I don't have any concept of what it is to be a director. I I really don't. I don't understand that vision and how you're going to get all these pieces to fit together. I don't have that thir that 35,000 foot view. And isn't that what directing is? And, and how does it help you to deal with your emotions or vice versa? Well, I don't know that I can answer. Well, let me try because otherwise it wouldn't be a show. <laughs> uh, well, it would be a show. It just wouldn't be a good show. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be a good one. So di directing in a nutshell is having a story to tell and having a point of view about that story. So I'm not trained. I didn't go to film school. You know, I read some books and I had people help me. And, you know, I also had people go out of their way not to help me, which is one of the reasons I started commercial directing film school and I want to help people. And it's instead of, uh, you know, four years and going in debt for six figures, you take one of my courses and, you get 25 years of directing experience. You know, it's like photographers don't tell the assistant, take the lens cap off until they've been a, an assistant for 12 years. <laughs> so I don't want to be that person. So I think having a point of view and being able to communicate, you know, if you watch like a Ron Howard masterclass or read quotes from directors, they'll always tell you, like she'll say, it's, keeping the vision and answering the same questions over and over and trying to protect the original vision because 
the practical filmmaking of bringing an idea to life is riddled with compromise. The budget can't afford this. You know, we can't get that costume. Didn't get the, I thought it would be this actress. It turns out we're getting this person instead. So you're, you're challenged with compromises and your job is to keep the vision on track by communicating. So do you go back to relax and breathe on the set when you're directing something? Do you, I'm sure you have the feeling a hundred times a day. I don't know what, where this is going. Absolutely. Or when, when I have to tell the same instructions that I said on Tuesday to the crew when we scouted, and I have to remind them again Wednesday in emails and texts and on a phone call, and then I remind them again on set. I just relax and I tell myself it's not their job to care as much as I do. Like I'm the, I'm the one getting paid. I'm the captain of this SS Cuckoo. So I'm going to repeat myself. And the other thing, this is crazy. It's almost passive in, in, in not in a passive way. Like I let people do whatever, like people were talking the other day on the job and I said, uh, I said, Hey guys, could you, let's cut. And everybody looks because I said cut in the middle of a take. Hey, guys. And I point to the two grips that are talking. Hey, guys, we're not going to talk during the filmmaking because we're here to capture a magic moment on film. It's the only reason we're here. Let's respect the process. And I kind of use that game show voice. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) It's not like, hey, motherfucker, shut the fuck up. We're rolling because that's going to breed this negative Mm -hmm. energy. Mm -hmm. Right. So. I would rather be like a doting mother nature, like with a little bit of a, like a strong feminine energy rather than Thor going, this is the way we're going to do things. It makes so much sense. I love all of this. This is what I, this is sort of what I try to help people capture with their parenting as well. Right. This is so lovely. I'm also so struck by, well, first of all, I can see why you respect the process because that's, it sounds like what you're doing. It's just, it, you're just on the river of happenstance and you'll just see how it flows and bring the best out in everyone, which I love. But you were saying at the beginning as a director, it's about having the point of the story and the point of view. And, and I was struck by how similar that is to people's lives, right? We have a story that we stick to almost all the time as human beings. Nothing ever works out for me. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. Right. We're constantly keeping that story, but you don't have to, as a, as a human being, you don't have to keep that story. And I just love how you're just kind of going with the flow and creating this safe, wonderful space and just gently reminding people why you're there. That's really wonderful, actually. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. It's as I'll tell them at the, you know, we do a technical scout where the, the main keys of the crew go to the location and you walk through the day, kind of mm-hmm. like rehearsing the, you know, in as detailed as I can be. And I've taken to doing a preamble where I tell them the story we're going to tell as opposed to here's shot one, here's shot two, put the camera here. Because I find when people are empowered with the knowledge Mm -hmm. of the story we're telling, they will have good ideas and it saves me from having to, you know, tell them where to put the trucks because they know the camera's going to look at the hot tub for the hot tub scene. So let's put the trucks in the driveway. But now they're invested in the story because you've told them the story. So their heart's now connected to the story, which I love. 
God willing, and tell them, hey, we are an army of love. And recently, I thought there were, I just sensed that it was a, a mixture of, you know, some LA people, we shot out of town and I had those people. So I just said, hey, um, this is our ad agency because they were they watch us scout. We've um, we've done a lot of jobs together. And so uh, it's not us versus them. They're right here. It's us. Because a lot of times on a film set, you know, it's it's the crew versus the producer. It's the director, producer, crew against the agency. It's the agency versus the client. And I find that if I can use, again, mm-hmm. humor and somewhat transparency. I mean, there's shenanigans going on behind the scenes, but be somewhat transparent. And then the big thing for me, and I don't have this mastered, right? But the biggest thing for me is remembering that people just want to be heard and the client is there and they're more nervous about the shot of the donuts because that's what we're selling donuts. (laughs) than they are Ed's comedy bit that he wrote and sold. No offense, Ed. (laughs) No, that's, yeah, I, I have the same thing. I care more about the donuts. <laughs> but you know, what you're saying is it's about connection, right? And it's about relationships. And whatever your job is, I, I don't care what job it is. It always comes down to relationships. Always. always but Jordan, yeah. these are skills. You couldn't have these skills. You couldn't be doing these things unless you had an awareness and a clear choice that you are going to do these things. And I imagine you have to have them in, like, you don't just have them on a film set, right? You have it in your life. If you look at any bio on any social media platform, I try to go father, filmmaker, founder of Commercial Directing Film School, which is, by the way, can be found at commercialdirectingfilmschool.com. I have many courses online and in person. But listing father first, because that's the both the most rewarding and probably the hardest job. So I've, I've raised four kids, two sons that I sired with Cheryl, Ed knows my ex-wife, mother of my children, and two twin stepdaughters that joined my life at an early age for them. Just the dynamics. I'm lucky enough. I get to work with both my boys. You know, I work actually with all my kids from time to time. But working with my sons is probably the hardest thing and teaches me the most patience, you know, because they they could hear the same thing from like I've had cinematographers answer my kid a question with this answer. Why are you asking us? Your dad knows all this stuff. And he goes, yeah, I know, but he's my dad. (laughs) Yeah, that's just it. My dad is my dad. And there are certain dad thing, you know, that relationship. But. You know, I, that's why I think the phrase "it does take a village," and sometimes the village people, is a good <laughs> phrase because, because, you know, parenting comes from a, it was supposed to be a communal thing. This idea that you know you're on an island yeah. in an apartment building in Marina del Rey, this is not parent. That's not what it's supposed to be. This is very artificial, and really, it's. Your kid, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I, we had three generations around us. We had in, a, in an apartment building. And I could go to my, now I could go to my grandparents. I could go to my uncles. I could go to my aunts. I could go to my parents. But it wasn't just my parents. There is a reason for that. So when your kids are going to the cinema, I understand why they're going to them and how it is this little community. Now, have your kids ever said, 
you know, my dad, you know, says that on the set, but he just doesn't say it. He doesn't say it to us. I've been directing since my kids were little. And when I get out of the car and I walk from the car up the porch past the butler and the tennis courts, <laughs> I breathe and go, they don't really care about my day. What was their day? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So that that early on was like, okay, are did they read a book today? It's did they learn something at school? You know, what what can I hear about them versus going in saying, Oh, this shot was so hard. Oh, the actor was an asshole. Blah blah blah. Yeah. yeah. Well now I, I wanna bring this around and this is something that really involves something we talked about on the show before. I wanna talk a little bit about rehearsal. Now, what is your approach to rehearsal? And I'm talking in context because Jennifer and I talk about cognitive rehearsal, which is rehearsing life scenarios and that anybody can do it and that it actually changes your perspective and that it's all a practice. Everything is, especially mental health. Tell me about how you work with people in rehearsal. Well, I mean, there's the literal rehearsal in the film world, like with the actors, and it's important to block the scene so the technicians, you know, the sound woman and the camera person and, you know, they and where they put the lights and the mic and all that. And then the, you rehearse with the actors like that's pretty obvious. Right. But f for me, I will rehearse in my office with an iPhone and Barbie dolls so that when I get to set, I'm not joking, by the way. <laughs> I will rehearse a scene so that I know the blocking so that I'm not wasting time on set and I can be a, a more clear communicator, a clearer communicator and a better leader and say, hey, guys, I shot this test. Or if it's like a weird effect, I'll shoot a bad version and and text it to people or show them on set and go, I'm not going to prescribe how we do this. I'm not even saying this is exactly how we have to block it, but I know my way works. You know the story. Can you people top it? So cognitive rehearsal, I do think about, okay, I've had a couple of Zooms now, or I'm working with a new ad agency, and you know the creative director has a really strong opinion about how this thing is going to go down. I don't want to come in you know, guns blazing, how can I, again, listen to that person? So I don't know that I practice it or rehearse it, but I definitely turn off the music, turn off the, well, not turn off the phone, but, you know, because I need it. It's like crack the phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I lost my phone, I would move in with Ed's parents. <laughs> and they're dead <laughs> for 35 years. That's but, true. But I do put a lot of thought into how the people will react. I have certain things I do on set that are a little uh, unorthodox. I go, okay, well, let me, I, I should explain that to this group. Or now that I'm pushing 80, I work with these millennials. <laughs> and I find that their sense of sarcasm and irony is a little more dull than the road comic of the 80s, 1980s. <laughs> a little more. <laughs> I, I change my demeanor. I maybe hold back on certain style of jokes. So yeah, the thought goes in like, like a pregame thing, more than acting it out. Yeah. Jennifer, 
cognitive mm-hmm. rehearsal, you can do this anytime, mm-hmm. anywhere. The idea is that you're actually practicing something that a life issue or something that yeah. you're uncomfortable with. And you're doing it with your kids. Kids and parents can do it. Couples can do it. Yeah. You sort of think of it like Imagineering. Imagineering. Don't play Scrabble with Jennifer. Don't. No, well, don't. I'm actually terrible at it. But the truth is, it's sort of like when you imagine things the way you want it to go, that tells that now you're starting to tell the story that you want instead of the story you don't want. And as you practice it in your mind, which is similar to what you were doing with the Barbies and the phone, is it's becoming familiar, right? And the more familiar it is, the more confident you are. And first of all, you're just so respectful of your whole team, like everyone around you. I love that, that everyone is a human being and everyone's respected. I love. And I love how you come out with your idea and you say this way or better. I love that. It's not like we're doing it this way. This is how it is. It's like, hey, I see it this way. Unless you guys can top it, this is what we're doing. It took a long time to get to that place because I was was using directing as a stand-up comedy stage. Me, me, me. I'm the star of the show. I'm going to be funny. I'm going to be big and loud. And it's my way or the highway. So coming to the place of uh, like a little more empathy and relinquishing and delegating made all my work better. Price went up. My spots got better. Everything worked. And what you're really doing is you're co-creating with everyone and you're bringing out the best in everyone. And each person has something that they're really good at. And that's really special. And that, that you can apply that to parenting and marriages and companies and whatever. So, so to bring it back to your point, Ed, you know, we spend so much time in our lives, you know, ruminating and focusing on what we don't want and complaining and, you know, being that dad that comes in and goes, oh, that shot was terrible and this didn't work. And this person had to tell him 59 times to do this. And we're kind of telling and retelling the story. And again, that midbrain that thinks it's, you know, wrestling with a saber tooth tiger that can't tell the difference between you having a bad day at work and chaos happening. It, it just throws you right into fight or flight, sending out cortisol and adrenaline, which downgrade your immune system and cause you, you know, health issues over time. So training your brain to think, uh, which is how we started the show, right? Just when you were saying that, you know, everything's going to be okay, like trusting the process. It's what's going to happen is going to happen. You know, you think of the analogy of like going in a river, right? A high a, a river going very quickly and you're trying to swim up against the current. You're going to get water up your nose. You're going to get sticks in your face. You're going to not be able to see. But if you just kind of lay back and trust that the current will usually, it's much better anyway, will take you around the rocks. Like you'll end up, it'll all work better if you just don't fight so much. And there's a beautiful surrender here. Jennifer, that is amazing. I And I love the river thing. And I think you're going to like this. Okay. Mind power. And I usually say it with a country accent to my kid. Mind power. <laughs> my Mind power. power. And so I took, one of my daughters went back to school this morning. We took her and my wife to the airport. My other daughter's with me. And I'm talking on the way home. And it was like 8.15 or so. She goes, well, I, I said, do you just want to chill for a second? She goes, I just can't believe you have this much energy. And I said, well, we had to get up. So let's just make it a great day. Yeah. She actually, the daughter in the car has a fatal peanut allergy. Oh, God. And for the first time in 20 years, the other Saturday night, she had a cookie the size of a buffalo nickel. And she goes, my mouth is tingling. And my wife goes, Jordan, taste this. I go, it's peanut butter. 
Oh God. We had to go to the emergency room. She was there for three, three or four hours, got the IV. We had the EpiPen ready. Okay. Okay. And we've only had one scare in 20 years. And my attitude was, this is a blessing. And I know the blessing gets overused, but you're fine. We went to the hospital and this is like a dry run in case this happens again in 20 years. Mm. If you're not with like, thank goodness you were with both of us. We all got to drop you off in the emergency room. Your mom went in, you know, they, they fixed you. You came home and we watched Netflix. Imagine if you were at a part a frat party and, you know, drinking and you ate something, you might not handle the situation. So I think it comes back to that rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Right. The mind power is looking at these experiences and going, oh my God, what a we we got through it. What a great learning experience. Well, that's huge. I, I, I honestly, that is really if there was a key to mental health, that's probably it. Right? To to be in a place of what am I supposed to learn here? How can I make this something that makes my life better? Right? So looking at that horrible situation, you could look at it, oh my God, that was so terrible, that was so scary. But she was okay. And it was a rehearsal for next time. And because that happened, there may not be a next time, right? So all of those things, you can either look at life from this negative, oh God, of course, and why not, why me and all of that, which which is legitimate sometimes, honestly, I don't mean to make light of it, but it won't get you anywhere, right? It it won't. Here's my river. This is why I loved your river analogy. I had a guy, uh, we were partners in a company and he moved to LA, right? From another big city. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was terribly late one time and he was frustrated and it's because he was coming from Burbank. And I know there's global listeners. I'll just say that the 405 (laughs) is double digit lanes here in Los Angeles and pre-pandemic, if you didn't get on at like 345, you might as well wait till seven o'clock. Yeah. 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 And this happened a couple of times. And after the second time that he was tardy, I said, uh, hey, man, you need some mind power. Why don't you leave like 15 minutes early? And when you get on that ramp, imagine yourself on the 405 in an inner tube on a lazy river. (laughs) And you got a cooler next to you. You got your radio or a podcast and maybe you listen to respect the process, which is everywhere. That you <laughs> but the 405 is a lazy river. And if you're early, you sit in your car, you go to a Starbucks, whatever, but you'll be an on-timer. You'll enjoy going five miles an hour sometimes because it's all perspective. It's all within your control. Yep. But I love mind power. But it wouldn't be as good if you said mind power. It's mind power. Mind power. You need some mind power. <laughs> love it, youngin. Uh, that is great. That is. I'm gonna do to do something with mind power. That's a whole. But just doing it that way. And I think I think we're doing a blue collar comedy tour of mind power. <laughs> I think that's what it's gonna be. We won't have those people, but we we're gonna do it. You and I are getting dressed up. I don't know how it's gonna be. There'll be a flag. It comes, it always comes down to mind power. You're, you, you can't control the conditions in your life or not very many. You can control how you respond to them. Right. And that's where mind power comes in. Mind power. Mind power. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I like that jacket. 
but I wanted to just ask you before we wrap up here, you've made three feature documentaries about comedians, comics, you're a comic, the life of a comic, all the things that happen. What have you learned about comedians, about the life of a comic, and how does it all relate to mental health, if at all? Right. I It started with I Am Comic, because as a commercial director, I was on the set of a Dannon yogurt commercial in Uruguay. <laughs> Enough said. And the, the young, the, this is when the millennials were just starting to invade the business, and they said, Hey, look at you in this green jacket from 1991 with shoulder pads. And the truth is I had taken the shoulder pads out, but the design of men's suits back then were still big without the shoulder pads. Mm. That was like the third or fourth time someone had asked me what it was like to be a comedian. And I tell the stories about being on the road and doing cable shows in front of a fake brick wall and said, you know what? I'll just make a documentary. So I made I Am Comic, which is available on iTunes. You know, it had a nice Netflix Showtime run and all that. Well, then people mistook me for a working comic. Hadn't done it in 20 years, 22 years or something, when a guy goes, hey, do you want to headline this show? I said, headline? They're like, okay, yes. Like, I had no material. So uh, has Wayne Fetterman been on your show yet? He has. Wayne Fetterman yeah. and I, I said, Wayne, go with me. We'll co-headline. And by co-headline, I mean, I'll do 20 minutes and we'll get a local kid to open the show and you do the bulk of the work. So that became I Am Road Comic, also streaming on all your platforms. Then I got invited to go to Afghanistan and other parts of the Middle East, maybe Iraq. I can't say for sure. And there's government issues if I say it outright. <laughs> and that became I Am Battle Comic, which let's just agree, it's a terrible name for a documentary. <laughs> You would think it would yeah. be like roast battle, like yo mama this and yo mama that. It has nothing to do with that. It's all about entertaining the troops. Right. 100% of the proceeds go to veterans, charities, and military families. Love that. 100%. Not, not net. Gross. Wonderful. Wow. So what have I learned from, uh, from dealing with comedians? Uh, neurotic, insecure, and some of them have just enough hubris to get them to where they need to be. It's kind of like fake it till you make it, but I'm not saying they're not funny. They're just so full of themselves that they then they grow into their talent grows into their success that they've almost willed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I love yeah. comedians. I'm fascinated by everything I love the stage and I love the comedy of it, but I'm fascinated by the lives of comedians, by the way they put things together in their heads. Wonderfully funny comedian and great energy. He was talking about like his standing ovations and I watched him do an hour and 10 minutes and stand at the edge of the stage. And he, it's almost like he willed the standing ovation. Okay. Yeah. And then 10 years later, I see him doing just like a sold out stadium Netflix special or whatever it was. And he, he grew into what he was already believing before it was really real. That level of belief in yourself and drive and maybe in his mind rehe was rehearsing to keep our theme here. 
I worked with the late great Patrick Swayze, star of Dirty Dancing oh, wow. and uh, wow. Roadhouse, and he had a similar thing, like this weird. I mean, we were at a hotel bar in Amarillo, Texas, and a bodyguard went around saying, "No pictures of Mr. Swayze." And I don't think anybody knew Mr. Swayze was in the bar in Amarillo. <laughs> but all of a sudden, yeah. within 35 minutes, the place was packed. Yeah. And they were happy to be there. Like it was it was a self-fulfilling thing and no one gets hurt. Yeah. I think I think, you know, I liken that to it's not exactly the same thing, but years ago when I was doing stand-up with Janine Garofalo and David Cross and people like that, I would see them go out. And they would do their stuff and no one would respond. Right. And you know what? What happened to them? They didn't change who they were. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what happened? You know what happened. They found their audience. The chipmunk movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, that happens too. But also Arrested Development and everything else. They found their audience. And Jonathan Katz once told me something great. He said, you know, I used to try to get people to like me, you know, like my comedy. And I realized that, you know, I'm not for everybody. <laughs> Spot on imitation. And then when you realize that, you know, you find your audience. Yeah, I can I can yes and you on that. There's a, <laughs> a famous marketer named Seth Godin. Yeah. He's a yeah. bald guy with glasses. I think he's a genius. And, and he, he has a, a, po- a very positive outlook. And he talks about, I don't know if he invented it, but finding your smallest viable audience. So who are the people that you want to serve? So I would say one of the reasons I started commercial directing uh, film school, which has a boot camp and an online masterclass, you don't have to remember anything but one website that has it all, commercialdirectingfilmschool.com. I'm not trying to be, uh, you see ads maybe, I don't know if they show up in your feed, but like on Instagram or something like, you know, shoot this YouTube video with your iPhone, get a million followers. I'm saying maybe get a couple hundred followers that really like what you do. Yeah. Because you're building relationship, right? It's coming back to relationship and knowing the people who follow you. There's something really cool that you guys were both talking about a minute ago, and that's just this belief, right? These people just believed that it was going to go that way, and they sort of, they, I think it's Neville Goddard who has this great quote, which is, don't believe what you see, see what you believe, which I love. Oh, that's a good one. See what you believe. Don't believe what you see, see what you believe. And when you focus on that, and that's where, so, and this is also a famous quote, but I can't, I don't know who it came from. So if somebody can let me know, that'd be great. But where thoughts go, energy flows. And that's the truth. That's how reality works. It really does. I love, I love it. Limiting beliefs can do the opposite, right? It is my power, but the opposite is true. If you believe you're no good, if you believe it won't work, if you believe it always goes wrong for you, then guess what's going to happen? That's what's going to happen. You know, it, at the top of the show, you two were going on and on. And there was something about the, the negative people that are asking you, Jennifer, I forget how you put it, but like if they're asking you just to put you down. Yeah, to take your power, or to put you down. Yep. I remember as a comedian, and Ed will tell you, Jennifer, I was very successful. Uh, I'm and, sure. And handsome. 
It, it, they almost fought each other. People are like, he should be a model. Why is he telling you? <laughs> they fought each other. Yeah, that's that's the way to describe it. His charm was fighting itself. So I was on television. I was hosting shows and I hosted game shows. And then I started directing and both working in television and getting behind the camera. I would run into comedians, some who didn't know me that well. Mm-hmm. And they would say, well, hey, how did you do it? Almost like, well, if you can do it, I can do it. I can it. do it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I took that as a put down. Like I'd be like, Well, I'm talented, motherfucker. <laughs> like what and I worked hard and I read some books and I failed miserably with a camcorder and didn't show anybody the shit that I made to get the opportunities to do yeah. what I'm doing now. I mean, I didn't say all that. That would be, you know, a, a mouthful. But I I started just tuning out those people. Like, I don't want to help those people because they wanted the easy route and wanted to know why weren't they having the success I had. They didn't really want to learn anything. Right. Yeah. Or they wanted me to go, oh, it's easy. Yeah. They're on their own journey, right? Yeah. yeah. Everybody's on their own journey. They'll come to their own their own spot. But I like the river. I like the river. A river runs through it. A river runs through you. And I think that that the river goes both ways. You can go against it. You can go with mm-hmm. it. And when you have thoughts and feelings, there's a constant river of thought in your head. There's a constant river of emotion that wants to come out. Let the river of emotion come out. Let the thoughts in your head, let them go. Let them go. They don't mean anything. They're not, they don't have any, they just go, you know? And, and, and really, you can, you can also change the direction by how you relate to those things. You can change the direction. I'm used to the river going against me, but, and I can make, I can choose to go the other way. And it's confoundingly easy once you do that. You know, I had a therapist once say to me, you know, you're riding around in a car, you got the emergency brake on. You don't need to get gas. You just have to let go of the emergency brake. Just let the brake go, the car will go on its own. Yeah, Yeah. some say love, it is a river. Sing it, sing it. Some say love. Oh, no, yeah, we can't clear it. We can't clear it, Jordan. We can't clear it. Um, yeah, it's round, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bet's The Rose, everybody, and pick that up on your on your streaming service, The Rose with Bette Midler. Uh, we always like to give Bette Midler a plug whenever we can on the show. I can't thank you enough because you are a pleasure to listen to. Plus, Absolutely. you've got such a great voice. You could be really... I mean, you could be the Tom Jones of voiceover. There's no question about wow. it in my mind. I don't know what that means, but I think you're getting the gist of it. Yes, thank you, Jordan. Thank you so much. This was great. You know, I I, I just want to thank you both for having, having me on the show. It, it's always fun to talk with you, Ed, and I love that you're providing this, like hopefully something out of this conversation will get people to watch Joe Coy's special or slow down on the freeway. Yep. <laughs> it's always great to talk. And we, we need to do it again soon. That's the other thing. And I want to come on your show. Now I'm not a director, but I can talk about the process. I can teach people how not to respect the process <laughs> and you, and it'll be a great illustration because you'll be, you'll be great. It'll be like, is he a model? Is he a comic? It'll be like that. Let's make it happen. Now go to go. Where do they go again, Jordan? Where do they go for the for the commercial directing and the and the the podcast is well. Why don't you tell them where they go to get everything? 
You know, I think the easiest in 2021, or if you're listening in the future, if Instagram is a thing, that Jordan Brady is my Instagram and Twitter. And there's links in the bio to Commercial Directing Film School, to the podcast, Respect the Process, to my book, Commercial Directing Voodoo, $10 for 25 years of experience directing commercials. So just that Jordan Brady, not this one, that one. (laughs) That one. Don't do this one. Go to that guy over there and respect the process in yourself. And thank you guys for listening Thank you, Jennifer, as always. Oh, thank you. So wonderful. And 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 really check out connectedparenting.com, connectedparenting.com. Just a, a wealth of information, a wealth of experiential uh, education, a wealth of you know, self-parenting skills, skills that you can use every day, very simple skills that you can use to help your kids, help yourself. And find us wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe and write us at ed at makelightmedia.com. Makelight, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T, media.com. Tell us what's going on with you. Tell us what's right with this picture, what you want help with, or questions that you have. And I will be sure to refer them immediately to Jennifer because I have (laughs) no answers for you. Thanks for coming. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick. See you next time. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube